Today's episode is all about the slow productivity approach, Doug. Man, I have worked with people who they were they'd come in and you could just tell their pressured speech and their way of being in the room was so anxious. And I'm like, do you realize how much anxiety you're experiencing? And they're like, we've never I've never had somebody observe that. I was like, wait, I don't need to fold my laundry right after I do it. This is gonna save me so much energy. I have this mantra that I've been trying so hard to change this addiction yeah. Yeah. to I choose ease. I choose quality over quantity. How's that working? Um, 50-50. I know the, oh, that's that bad. That's better than I thought. This podcast represents the opinions of our hosts and guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice and is for informational purposes only. This podcast also does not establish a standard of care, doctor-patient, or client relationship. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. And because each person is so unique, all listeners are encouraged to connect with counseling and medical professionals for assistance with their personal journey. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. Welcome to We're Not Fine. I'm Dr. Talia Jackson. And I'm Doug Jensen. We thank you for listening every week to our deep and thought-provoking conversations about relationships. Welcome back to We're Not Fine. We're we here for you. another episode. I don't know that I've missed you because I always feel you with us. So Oh, that was so nice. I thought you were going to say I didn't miss you because I don't know who you are. No, I know every single viewer we have personally. Listener and viewer. Because they're very different. We've got what listeners and viewers. Just viewers. I'm, I, I don't know. I think of them as the same. Are they? Participants who know. listen and view or and or. Anyway, welcome. We... I have this amazing episode for you today. I'm very excited. And we are going to chat and catch up, but also we want you to know why you're here. We've got Dr. Kate Henry yep. to talk about slow productivity, which is literally the perfect time of year. Yeah. After you've made a list of a thousand New Year's resolutions. She's so amazing. Slow living, slow productivity, turtle in the hair. Bring it. A thousand, but we did already a New Year's resolution we episode did. where we did not encourage 1,000. So hopefully you did not make 1,000 as Talia suggests. Um, this this is what I think about that. I'm so excited about this because when I think about productivity, you and I have talked about this, like so many people want to know about it. People want to know about like, how do I become more productive? Because I swear we all in this culture have this drive to keep doing and doing and doing and doing more. So I'm excited about this. It's amazing. Yes, And it also, is. like, with my ADHD, I've been in a constant battle You have with ADHD? Time. I haven't noticed. I mean, you do too. You're just undiagnosed and unmedicated. Just He loves it when I say that. Yeah, I he like loves you, getting teased about. I like when you project your experience onto me. Your hair looks in amazing a distorted today. Way. Your hair looks amazing today. <laughs> I like how you finish my... Sandwiches! Finally. All right. We've done this now too many times. It's just Sorry not even funny anymore. Um, I had some funny things happen to me this week that I haven't told you about. You have not told me anything funny. We've been having a lot of conversations, but I don't remember any funny. I know. And also... Well, I, I think you to, they're funny? That's what I was going to say. Lower your expectations. Oh, okay. And the first one low. is about a really sketchy manicure that I had. So if that is not something of interest, you have my permission to take a short nap. And I'll wake you up when I'm done. Doug, 
look more interesting. <laughs> so. This is my interested face about your manicure. I found this new place and I was obsessed with it. And I had like the best manicure ever, gel manicure. And she was so lovely and so tender. And she did such a good job. Is this it? And then I went back to the same place and yep. I got stuck with this other person who, and you know, I am not about men this, women that, good, bad, not our jam. And correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a male identifying manicurist that is amazing, I would like to know about it. But this was my first experience with this. Stop looking like a grumpy cat meme. What if I make this face? <laughs> so I sit down hopeful, but I should have just gone to the same person as last time. This guy took some like machine that was like a grinding off the top layer of my Do you have paint. fingers? It was like, it was like really intense. He was going so fast and I thought he was gonna like grind down my entire nails. And then he started clipping my cuticles and they were like, half of them were bleeding. Okay, that doesn't feel <laughs> right to me. It was horrible and he never said sorry. He never even acknowledged it. And of course, because I'm so weird, I spent most of the time trying to be like, well, what do I do? Do I still leave him a 20% tip? Do I leave him a 5% tip? Do I leave him no tip? What kind of a statement is that? And I ended up as like my way of saying F you, I, I gave him a 15% tip so I could still come back and I wouldn't be blacklisted. So here's the question. But it looks good. I do. Um, the blood that's running down your <laughs> fingers. That's a, I had to pay extra for that. I see. Yeah. This is what I want to say about that experience. Um, and, you know, we'll get into productivity with Dr. Kate Henry soon. But this is what I think about that. Like, the question is, do you give honest feedback? I feel like you right. need to. Like, I want honest feedback if I'm doing something in a crappy manner. I want something if I get... If I'm doing some mediocre or if I'm harming somebody, I want people to tell me, right? So I can make the shift that or the change. That wasn't the vibe I was getting from this guy. That he was available to it? That he was available to I it. I don't Plus, think it matters. I don't know if I know how to do that. I'm going to teach you how to do that. So I'm not liking that my fingers are bleeding. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you could be a little more gentle. And I don't know what that machine is, but I've not had that before. I don't like it. So when I've had a massage, for example, yeah. and somebody wants to use a gun, I'm always like, I don't want the gun. I want like digging with your hands. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad to give feedback because you get more of what you want in this life if you can express what it is you want to need and what you think and feel. Kind of a theme to the We're Not Fine podcast. How do you communicate if you're working with someone like in um, body work or massage that maybe is a talker, but you're really wanting a quiet experience? Okay. Well, that is my experience, actually. I do not talk during massage, so I will tell people. So just, I tell people now ahead before a massage. Um, I say, so I'm not somebody who wants to talk. I typically fall asleep. This is my time to be in my head. So if I don't respond to something, I'll yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. Like sometimes people will say like, is the pressure okay? That sort of thing. Right. Um, and I'll be glad to answer them if I need to, but it is my time. I love it. I love and it. And I am paying for my time mm -hmm. and I'm paying for a service and you were paying for a service with your nails, right? My bleeding, bleeding nails. And he so also, what I'd like, like you to do next time is call me on the phone and then hand like, the phone to the guy and say, so she's over. afraid. 
but I'm going to tell you, you are like ripping her fingers apart yes. and she's going to have stumps. And he did this like a really weird thing where he would like paint one nail yeah. and then have me put it in the gel UV thing and then paint one nail on the other side and have me, it was like the weird, like clearly so the guy, the guy he was making feedback. it up. I mean, here's he the deal. Along. Like I think people should give people feedback. If they're doing something that could be improved upon, nobody does better unless we're given feedback. But would you consider feedback that I'm just going to call in advance and make an appointment with the woman that was amazing? I don't think that's feedback. I think he then doesn't learn. Like, he didn't do a good job. It was weird. It's weird. Whatever machine you used on me that is used to sand wood, (laughs) um, I don't want you to use that on anybody anymore because it hurts. And then when you cut my fingers open and I'm bleeding. It was not my favorite. Yeah. I think he doesn't know that that's not a good experience. Yeah. So I have had some manicures. I've had some pedicures. If somebody made me bleed consistently by cutting my fingers, I'd be like, ow! That hurts. Um, I just had I might your punch them too, but that would be inappropriate. cat meme face. Ugh. Do you want to know what else exciting happened to me this week? I think so. Was that your funny story about your nails? Because that's not funny that you got hurt. This one's kind of comical. Okay, tell me about your. So I it was yes two days ago. I started getting these emails from Chewy.com. That's a pet place. Yes, it's yep. like pet food yeah and it was like your order is on its way like order received order confirmed for three thousand nine hundred ninety six dollars and then like two minutes later another order for four thousand five hundred and some dollars chewy.com fraud twenty thousand dollars of dog food And it was coming to your place. But that's what I don't understand is the shipping address was my house and some of it was on my Amex and some of it was on a debit card, but it was through PayPal. So I don't know what's happening, but a bot from somewhere has my information. Do you know what's hilarious about that? If you wanted to get back, it is kind of funny. Like if you wanted to get back at somebody, which would be passive aggressive, and I do appreciate direct feedback again i'm just going to reiterate that that you should let somebody know directly how their behavior affects you but if they if they've let you know that they're upset hint hint and you just don't listen to them hint hint um and they send like twenty thousand pounds of dog food or fish food to your house <laughs> that's hysterical except for that i paid for it oh well, that's, that's right. what you're saying that's Is what that, i'm saying like make you pay for it and then you're stuck with all it's this a food revenge i love that funny revenge story purchase what if they sent you a lot of parakeet food that would be just as hilarious if not more hilarious and since my child has a parrot i would take some of that off of your hands free i would not pay you for it though because that's not kind you have to pay me twenty thousand dollars for a small parakeet. I love that somebody might have done that out of revenge, but again, oh they should have let you know right away directly that they were upset. Was with it you. you? I'm getting the hint that it was. I you. was trying to hint about that, but I'm not <laughs> clever enough, nor would I ever do that. I think that's really not my style. I would just say, I'm really upset with you, Talia, and when you did this, it made me feel this. That's how oh, I would let God. you know. When you, you make cut it sound my, so easy. It is easy. Friends. That's enough of our nonsense, and without further ado, you will love this fantastic episode. It's going to change the way you see success and productivity. To you and you and you. We 
you're not fine family, we could not be more excited to introduce to you the one and only Dr. Kate Henry. You are a productivity coach and an independent scholar who specializes in, get this you guys, <laughs> sustainable and well-being oriented productivity, which is like an oxymoron that nobody could ever imagine that productivity and well-being could go hand in hand. So she's gonna teach us how. I might, I might put them in the same category though. And I will tell you, Kate, what is so striking to me about this particular conversation. I swear, since the pandemic, people have been struggling with this issue in particular. Mm. So I'm very curious what you think about the impact of having been at home for a couple years, the impact of so many businesses closing and people struggling with motivation, combining that with some political strife in the US, combining it with racial issues uh, from our very own city here, the George Floyd murder. Um, we have so many things that have, I think, just been crashing at people's sense of like motivation and productivity. Yeah. So I'm delighted by this conversation. Did you have more on the introduction of this beautiful person? Yeah, I was only halfway through. Okay, I interrupted that, you. Well, it felt because really Because it wasn't relevant. very productive. Because I was moving <laughs> too slowly because- Tell me why. Today's episode is all about the slow productivity approach, Doug. Can I talk now? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I it, want to talk. She combines her research and practices of productivity, intentionality, and mindfulness, offering tangible steps to achieve success on people's own terms, which I think is incredible. And you yeah. also are the author of the book, Tend to It, a holistic guide to intentional productivity. And we literally cannot wait to hear more about this revolutionary approach. And I'm not sure if it's revolutionary or if I'm late to the game, to tell you the truth. I'm gonna go that it's revolutionary because yeah. Kate is on our show. Right. So whatever you have to say is gonna be the first time anyone has heard any of this. We discovered you and we discovered this approach. And that's when it was invented. Is Two days ago. I don't talk very slow, <laughs> so I don't think that's going to work for me. But Kate, I'm kind of just so curious. Like one of the things that people get asked all the time, like in our profession is, what made you want to become a therapist? What made you want to do this work? And all that sort of thing. I kind of want to know, we want to know everything about your journey and kind of focusing in on this slow productivity, all the other concepts Talia said. Tell us about your journey. Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to chat with both of you today. Um, and my journey to get to where I was, was um, a little rocky, which many of our journeys are. I was, and I guess still am, a lifelong academic. So I decided at a very young age that I was going to become a professor, become an English professor. And every single thing from the time when I was really a child was in service of reaching that goal. So poetry camps, publications, my undergrad major, an MFA in creative writing, a master's and a PhD in rhetoric and composition. Yes, I had 10 straight years of wow. grad school. <laughs> um, and okay. it was great. It was fun. Um, however, in 2017, I discovered that everything shifted. I developed chronic health conditions, very severe chronic back pain that made it such that it was very difficult for me to sustain the speed and the like really workaholic approach I had towards my productivity. Um, and at that point, my trajectory that I had been working towards for decades 
really shifted because I had to accept that pursuing a tenure track professorship really was not going to be accessible to me with the needs that I had for caring for my body, the limitations I had to put on my work that, um, and the way I was approaching it. So I acknowledged that I was a workaholic and I had to completely shift. So at that point I discovered, okay, the way I've been doing productivity, it's not going to work for me anymore. I need to relearn how to be productive in a way that's accessible and that will um, work for me with my chronically ill body. And I endeavored to spend a year, which became two years of researching and practicing and learning about productivity and slow living, um, personal development. And I blogged about it every single week for two years. So I was trying out all these tools, developing this very robust toolkit, which of course um, led me to the path of identifying, wow, my productivity is not accessible to me as a chronically ill person. And our conceptions of productivity as a culture are really not accessible for anyone, whether you're chronically ill or not. You know, um, so I, it just was this big aha moment for me. And I was at that time like, I don't wanna be a professor anymore. I want to research and publish about and support folks in finding more accessible ways to achieve their goals, but not burn out and not feel terrible about themselves if they can't. Wow, Kate, that's incredibly well put. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's wild. And okay. I love that you did all of this sort of out loud b before it was wrapped up in a bow, but sharing your process of, I I'm assuming that they're, I mean, it sounds so beautiful and, oh, I'm going to figure out the best way. I'm going to do a quick pivot. I'm going to reassess and create a new way of being productive but i'm assuming that there was some sort of a grieving process of letting go of this dream it sounds like you've had since you were a child yeah so how was that for you how did you manage that grief or maybe there wasn't grief i don't know i don't want to assume yeah well there absolutely was grief um and for me that grief was multifold. one part was that um I could no longer participate in academia in the way that I had been forever. And in academia, doing the bare minimum is not enough to get you a job. Um, it is, you have to do your coursework, do your publications, but you have to do things that will make you stand out in order to apply for and be successful at achieving a job that everyone else is applying for. So there was some real grief in the fact that I was not going to be as you know, competitive as other folks. And I also felt like I didn't fit in anymore. And, you know, my closest friends, while they supported me, they didn't have the same experience with pain or with fatigue or, or illness. And um, there was some loneliness there. I did find some really good support online in um, communities where folks who also had chronic health conditions were offering support for one another, you know, listening, sharing their stories. That was very monumental for me at that point where I felt quite lonely in my experience. Um, so that was very key to me. And I also, in moving through that grief of learning to live a new experience with my energy and um, the way my body felt, I was led towards the disability justice movement, which was um, really aligned with my politics and my interests in accessibility and just for your listeners, for folks who are like, hmm, I've heard of disability justice. I'm not sure what that is. So 
disability justice is an intersectional approach to supporting folks who are disabled or sick or chronically ill. So we're thinking through this disability justice lens of the person as a holistic person, instead of saying, oh, you have um, a disadvantage or an impediment, we're saying like, you as a person who may be chronically ill or disabled, et cetera, um, are, you know, where you are starting from is this excellent place to be starting from. And the systems that we're functioning within are inaccessible. It is not an issue with you. So within the disability justice movement, there's a lot of mutual aid support. Um, there are folks who are thinking about the ways that um, we can extend just beyond like litigation or like the rights we're fighting for to really support one another in that space, thinking intersectionally around people's whole experience. So my experience as a middle class white chronically ill person is going to be very different than, for example, um, you know, an unhoused person or someone who has a different class or a different race or a different gender experience than me. Kate, I will tell you, I'm getting totally lost in this part of the conversation, and I almost want to do an entirely <laughs> huge episode on what you just said. It's incredible. Um, I want to make two comments. Thank you for nodding and understanding my excitement. So part of my practice has been dedicated to working with uh, people with long-term HIV illness. Um, and so when I hear about how mm. you're conceptualizing disability and how a person is a whole person, the mutual aid piece, etc., critically important, um, and I apologize for getting lost. I also want to back up a little bit and say, I'm so very impressed, um, and I hope our viewers really hear your story of like listening to your body and understanding, I just cannot do it the way, I can't keep plowing through the way I was gonna do it before. I have to take a look at things realistically. And that you took that moment um, and you kind of evaluated like, what do I wanna do differently in order to make that work is a really, really critical piece. And you mentioned the part about like uh, maybe class and about socioeconomic status as a factor here. You know, obviously as a middle class white person, you have privilege to be able to do that. Um, you're from a beautiful community uh, near my friends in uh, Massachusetts. And so I think the reality of the circumstance, like how can we make sure everybody has that same opportunity regardless of those factors? I know that's what you're talking about. Mm. So of course I want you on again uh, to talk about that particular issue because you have probably some very compassionate and, um, and, and wise thoughts on that. So I didn't want to get too far off, but I needed to just congratulate you on kind of talking about that very personal process. It really feels significant to me, very touching and very encouraging mm, for people to be able to shift. You're welcome. Um, speaking of, uh, and did you want to say anything more about the justice movement? No, because I could talk for hours about it. I was just going to say, maybe we need an episode. I, I really do want to talk to you about that. So yeah. um, maybe we'll, we'll have you on again, Kate. I, I love what you just said. Um, I want to talk about, I mean, we're talking about physical disability when we're talking about some of the stuff that you experienced with your back. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. Mm. And I so love that you talked about grief related to that because that it becomes insurmountable. There's so many layers of grief, I think, related to physical illness, disability, uh, whether chronic or terminal. Mm -hmm. But let's go to mental health for a second. So I'm very curious in terms of like this productivity model and how you view all of that. Like when people struggle with ADHD or depression, which of course motivation, low motivation is one of the symptoms of a depressive disorder, um, can be for anxiety as well. But any of these OCD, OCPD, uh, the personality disorder traits of OC, um, obsessive compulsiveness. So the the issue here, I'm very curious how you understand how those mental health components, and of course we'll probably chime in on this, impact people abil per per person's ability to be productive. Yes, this is. I'm so glad you're asking this question. I think this is key, and this 
I'll respond to this through, I'll put on my productivity scholar hat here. So as a productivity researcher, um, I'm, you know, a lot of uh, productivity how-to guides and suggestions are positioned for a one-size-fits-all audience, right? And productivity scholars often are focusing on three key things. They're focusing on time management, focus, and energy levels. And my interest, because I am passionate about, passionate about supporting folks who live with chronic health conditions, I'm also thinking about how our mental health, how our physical comfort, our physical energy, the way our bodies feel, are also personal resources that affect our productivity. So I think, you know, thinking about uh, neurodivergence and mental health and productivity, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that this one size fits all approach to productivity is truly not one size fits all. I like can't tell you how much I love the idea that they're personal resources, which takes away the shame of if you're struggling with motivation or focus or concentration, you're just lazy, you're not pushing yourself hard enough, you yeah. don't have discipline. It's just like- Try harder. Right, yeah. it's just like such a simple thing. I just like really wanted to highlight that they're, I mean, the personal resources and not everybody has the same personal resources for whatever internal or external reasons. I love it. I do too. Absolutely. And this makes me think of something you mentioned earlier, Doug, thinking about like um, throughout the pandemic, how we are approaching our productivity. This makes me think uh, I am not a parent. My spouse and I don't have kids, but people who are working parents, people who have um, people who are in a caretaking role, people who have additional responsibilities where they may not be able to access certain you know, like those wonderful places of flow when we're being productive or really doing deep work for hours at end, right? So, um, and certain things that might work for me aren't going to work for my spouse who has ADHD, right? So this idea that if we just pick up these, you know, like I'm going to just do what this person tells me to do. Um, it's not, you may not be able to access that. Just like for me, I could not do like one of the five things you need to do before 9 a.m. And I'm like, I don't even start my work day till 10 a.m., you know? <laughs> so um, that's, so that, that's what comes to my mind. But I'd love to hear your expertise on this as clinicians as well when you think about, um, you know, mental health and neurodivergence in terms of productivity and accessibility. Yes, I mean, I feel like that whole idea of inaccessibility is so powerful because as someone who at the age of 45 I was diagnosed with ADHD but of course I've had it forever I just didn't know what it was called but I always felt like I I don't have as many minutes in the day as everybody else clearly because everybody else seemed to be getting things done and there is some very strange way that my brain experiences the movement of time or to-do lists and checking things off. And I think that it's so important to be paying attention to it, just like you said, as these personal resources that if also, if you're not sleeping well, if you are generally overwhelmed, a three, you know, a three point to-do list is going to just take you down for the day. And there are so many, you know, if you look on Instagram, so many memes and whatnot about ADHD and how it's yeah, like I'm paralyzed sure. because I have five things to do on my to-do list. So I'm just going to stay in bed all day. 
or I have something to do at 2 p.m. so I'm going to be anxiously pacing back and forth until then or you know with depression I mean do you want to talk about the other I, I mean I personally have experience with ADHD and clinically we have a tremendous amount of experience with all of the other mental health disorders. I agree with that. You know, I, I want to say a couple things about that. You know, as clinicians, what we do, Kate, is we assess, right? Like when someone comes into my office, if they're saying I'm procrastinating, I'm struggling to get my PhD done. I had two clients that were all but dis dissertation ABD. And so, you know, there were people just really struggling to complete that process. And I know kind of behaviorally how to manage that and help people kind of break things down, mm -hmm. prioritize, make sure things are reasonable. Like I would tell one client, like, do one page this week. And he'd be like, well, I can do more than that. And I'm like, but you're not. Right. So let's figure that out. But I will say, Kate, one of the things that I go to right away when it comes to any of these mental health diagnoses is that my job is to make sure I understand what's going on. So I, I end up really understanding, like even if somebody says that productivity is their issue or they can't clean their house or they can't, mm -hmm. again, uh, complete uh, job responsibilities, et cetera, or they're struggling to manage their household. That's you know, right. you mentioned something so beautiful about what it means to be a care, caregiver or a caretaker or a parent or whatnot. Um, and I think everybody has their own story about that. But the truth is you add pieces to that puzzle. And Talia and I often talk about this. You know, I'm an empty nester. You're not yet an empty mm -hmm. nester. But I still find myself busy as hell. Like, I just cannot mm -hmm. find any time to do anything in my house. Um, so I kind of laugh at myself. I'm like, when did I fill this puzzle piece? And I'm like, oh, you started a podcast, Doug. That's what you did. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's a part of this, Kate, that I, I really want to just from the mental health point of view, like, our role is to really understand. And it really would just be so amazing to work with someone like yourself to say, like, on my end, this is what is their diagnostic piece. This is where their symptomatology is. And this is what I'm dealing with in terms of managing those symptoms so that they can work with someone like you on understanding how productivity might work for them. Because I really do think like people need to get to a certain level of being able, it's kind of like antidepressants. I always tell people the goal of an antidepressant or the goal of an anti-anxiety or antipsychotic or whatever you're taking is to get you to a functional level mm -hmm. where the stuff that we're working on can actually happen. So that's what mm -hmm. I would say about mental mm -hmm. health. Like regardless, like, like when you say 100%. I found out at 45. Right. Like you needed that information. How helpful is that? Oh my gosh, it was incredibly validating because all of a sudden at my fingertips were thousands of resources that other people have, you know, the suggestions and tips yeah. and tricks. Yeah. And I mean, just incredibly validating to realize oh my gosh, I've been doing the best that I could be doing with what I knew about what was going on for me internally. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So that's that's been pretty powerful. And so going back to your question, like, you know, what do we think about that? It's really important to understand what the hell we're dealing with. I mean, I have worked with people who they were, they'd come in and you could just tell their pressured speech and their way of being in the room was so anxious. And I'm like, mm -hmm. do you realize how much anxiety you're experiencing? And they're like, We've mm. never, I've never had somebody observe that. And I'm like, how horrible to be able to live with that, have to live with that and not know how it's impacting things. So again, mm. assessment and understanding what's going on, making sure you understand so that someone can actually start looking at those puzzle pieces that you bring to the table. Do you so, know what's yeah. so interesting that what you just said is it is, it's fascinating to see sometimes when people come in and they talk to you that they don't even realize 
what it is they're battling because it's just the way they've always felt That's exactly right. their entire lives. Yeah. So they didn't even realize yeah. maybe that they're crawling out of their skin with anxiety or that others don't. I mean, and so it is, it's incredibly validating to yeah. just put that out there. And so, yeah, in order to do, I mean, that's why, you know, when you talk about time management and focus and energy levels, um, we all have to take a look at why those things are happening. And oftentimes, like energy level in particular, if somebody's dealing with chronic energy depletion, I would possible. likely refer them yeah. to a physician, right? A medical provider of some kind. Like, is there something else going on that we need to know? Like all yes. the rule outs. Like in my in my training, you know, it's assess, 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 rule out, rule out, rule out. Right. Um, and so we got to make sure that everyone is maximizing kind of who they are. And that's why, Kate, when you talked about like recognizing your back pain and recognizing your own kind of physical experience, I'm like, great work. Yes. Um, I don't think most people have the opportunity to take a moment and really think about that. But it was so touching to me when you talked mm -hmm. about it because you took a moment to say, this is what's going on for me. I have to listen to it and I can't just go around it. I have to go right through it. So mm. such an impressive process you've had. And it sounds like it was not a quick fix for you at all. No, it wasn't. It was, and this is, I think, incredibly common for folks who live with chronic health conditions that um, it, my own journey to getting a diagnosis took three years. So I did not have a diagnosis um, and spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars seeing specialists, getting every test and trying all these things. And, um, you know, eventually did um, get diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease and chronic Epstein-Barr virus, both of which really affect my energy levels. Um, oh and, my and you have, have amazing medical providers in Boston. Well, yeah, I, yeah, and I do. And I have my amazing doctor. She's in New Hampshire. Like there are some wonderful, there's wonderful support, but it did, it was, uh, crazy making to have three years of like, I know I have these, this pain and my fatigue is just off the charts. And like, but it looks fine on, on all of the tests and like Lyme disease tests are notoriously, you know, give, uh, false negatives, you know? So it was just a very, uh, you know, challenging time to get there. I was lucky to have like my wonderful spouse. My dissertation advisor was so supportive. So I did have support to move through that, but it was quite challenging to navigate. Well, and I want to say the message that I would love our viewers to hear from that is you got to keep going. Don't give up. Listen to yourself. Trust yourself. Do not let anybody tell you you're not experiencing those symptoms. I have so many people who have had sort of chronic symptoms and they just can't get an answer. You got to keep looking. Right. And it may not be the provider that you're working with, but you got to keep looking. So another great message from you, Kate, about stand up for yourself, be a self-advocate. That's right. I kind of wish we didn't have to do that sometimes when you're not feeling good. Right. The hardest thing to do sometimes is say, you are not listening to me. Mm. There is something going on here. So what, a, what an inspiration that is as well to just kind of keep fighting and advocating for yourself. Nice work. Um, I wanted to ask about this whole, just the workaholic culture that, you know, and I keep on thinking, I mean, Doug knows all I ever talk about is how I am the <laughs> fastest hamster on the hamster wheel going nowhere, which is like my experience of ADHD more before medication. But just like Doug said, we literally probably between the two of us had 45 minutes free up in our crazy schedules. And we're like, why don't we add a a 20 hour a week podcast in that 45 minutes. So of course it was the opposite of my goal in life, which is the slow productivity or 
choosing ease. But I, this whole workaholic belief system, it's not just normalized, but it's celebrated. It's like what everybody thinks of when they think of, like you said, you can't do the bare minimum. You have to be exceptional. You've got to stand out. You have to go above and beyond. And that's success. Um, so how, I mean, it's, is it avoidance? Why are we doing this to ourselves? Uh, yeah. What's happening here? I hate it. As someone yeah. who's been in grad school for 10 years, yeah. let's please talk. Why? Why? <laughs> no, I mean, I hear you. Like, as I said earlier, like in grad school doing, there was real normalization and praise in going above and beyond and being successful and competitive. And, um, there was also, you know, like sometimes advisors or professors were like, yeah, it's what I had to do. So it's what you have to do. Um, I also think, and I'll try not to create a whole new podcast topic for us here, but oh, I think- too late. Feel free. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go for it. So, I mean, I think that there is this, um, like at least my personal experience was like connecting my worth to my work. I really sought to, um, you know, find I, when I, when I, was successful at something for school, which I always was. I'm very smart. I'm good at school. Um, I would feel great. And then that would dissipate. I would immediately have to reach for the next thing. So I think that that's a very common experience. We always need to be achieving. I also think, and this is a wonderful thing that over the last few years, more folks are having conversations about, but productivity culture, like many things in, in late stage capitalism are um, really informed by what like white supremacist beliefs. So I think ideas of scarcity, ideas of competition, ideas that um, perfectionism, that I myself have to do it all by myself instead of working with a community. And a lot of my work with slow productivity has been acknowledging that in my own experience, um, you know, trying to push back against that. And I've learned from some really great scholars and writers. I'm not sure if you know Tricia Hersey's work. She um, has she wrote um, uh, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. She started the NAP ministry. And oh, she's yes. So, I yeah, follow her on Instagram. I didn't remember her name. I love what she has to say. I love what she's putting out there. She's phenomenal. And so she's thinking about reclaiming rest, um, both as like a reclamation, but also as like an act of reparations, particular, particularly for um, Black and African-American folks. You know, so like she's thinking of really just like diving at, you know, the way that productivity is in bed with, you know, white supremacist or patriarchal, um, you know, beliefs around the way we approach our productivity and the way we feel about it. So I think over the last few years, folks who maybe in the past haven't thought about that framework, including myself, are beginning to untangle and be like, hmm, why do I feel so, why do I feel scarcity or urgency right now? What would it look like to reject that and choose something different. And um, I think within the world of academia, within the world of entrepreneurship, there's, that's a, that's a, you know, complicated, but powerful um, thing to interrogate. Yes, I would like another podcast on that. So now we're up to three. We're with up you, to Kate. three more hours um, with you. So I literally just wanted to listen for an hour and have a, a seminar on what you just said. Uh, because it's really, what? really intense and and uh, and really critically important for us to think about these things. The way that you just said it made you think about why are you so um, focused on scarcity? Uh, for example, I just I, I loved when you said that. 
you and I talk about this, Talia. Like we joke about our practice sometimes. Like if somebody cancels or if somebody stops therapy, we're like, oh no, everything is like, we're going under. We're going under because we're in (laughs) private practice, right? And so we're reliant on it. It's never happened for either one of us. I've been in practice 28 years. Once my practice got full, like 25 years ago, I haven't suffered from referrals i don't advertise so i have to just remember we're we're good we have to Um, remind ourselves ourselves. and each other so i'm just really struck by it and it's really making me think and honestly since um the black lives matter movement and whatnot i have been particularly interested in thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking about my own experience as a, a white person of my age despite being gay and having my own kind of struggle with uh inclusivity etc and and whatnot and equality uh really should be a non-issue for all of us by the way but you know at the end of the day kate it's a really really great great contemplation and yes how do we keep having episodes with you i mean um, it does seem <laughs> easier to reject that productivity m- framework when you think about it like that and it is, yeah. except, except Talia, right? Like, even as you're talking about this, I don't, I'm just going to own, I'm sitting here thinking, I don't know how to stop. Well, like, it, I, that's what, it, that was my next question is like, is this an addiction? Are we like addicted to that feeling? Look, what's it, what are we doing? Yeah, and Kate, doing? I'm going to own something. And, you know, I, I don't know if you've seen pre- previous podcasts of ours, but I grew up with poverty. Uh, my family did not have a lot. There was no education in my family outside of high school. So I found myself needing to get as far away from that as I could. Mm-hmm. So I overcompensated and overcompensated and sent my kid to NYU and USC for grad school and, you know, my other to a fashion school in L.A. But I worked hard in order to give them that opportunity so they didn't have to do what I did, even though I got as far away from some of that as well. And then I think what was so important about getting away from that? Right. Like, yeah. that's really what you're saying. Like, what what are those values that I'm I'm doing and talk about patriarchy and talk about capitalism and talk right. about all of our messages? Um, really big conversation. I see here. <laughs> one of the things, Kate, that I'm loving about this interview, you have this excitement even in your eyes um, about these conversations. So, yeah, we could go a long way with this. Yes. Yeah, we could. Also, USC is a great school. My best friend teaches at USC. She's a professor. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, um, but I hear you. And I'd like to, to think about what you just said, Talia, like around addiction or this like compulsion to work. Like I, um, I'm not sure if you know this, Doug, but I, I am in recovery. I've been sober for 10 years I and I've written before. Yeah. And I've written before about like, I have a piece um, that I, that I published about like my experience with workaholism and like addiction to alcohol and the ways that those were in line. And like with like my alcoholism, I was able to be like, oh, well, I'm just not going to drink. Like I have this, but there's this switch in my head that doesn't turn off when I'm supposed to stop drinking. So I just won't drink. But obviously with my work, I can't do that. I can, it's not possible to just be like, well, I'll never work again. <laughs> so um, I really had to like uh, utilize tools. Um, I really had to like externalize my approach to productivity. For example, using like like automated to-do lists that once I checked off my things for the day, it was like, Kate, you're done for the day. Like go relax. Or um, like really the concept of like slow productivity is reimagining productivity through the lens of slow living. And like slow living is where like, I again, 
fourth podcast episode, Slow Living, but like, um, <laughs> you know, like, uh, Slow Living is like, for example, valuing quality over quantity. Like we're really like creating spaciousness in our days so that we can uh, reflect and make very intentional decisions around how we want to expend our energy. And when we approach- yeah. And like when we approach productivity through that lens, we are like, um, you know, the in the approach becomes less like, how can I be as efficient and effective as pur purpose or on purpose and get as much done as I want? And rather, um, you know, like, how can I be very mindful around the way that I'm approaching my productivity? I love that you're using the word mindful. Of course, that's like being in the moment, making sure you are paying attention to yourself, paying attention to what's going on. Um, I am going to, and I've thought about this forever, but like I'm off this week. My kids are home for the holiday from LA and Chicago. And you know, it's very hard for me to just sit. Like I find myself always thinking, what food do we need? What do we need to prepare? What decorations do I need? Do I have all the gifts wrapped? Do I have right. everything purchased? Right. Um, I have like two more, three more dining events with friends over the next three days. Um, and it just gets overwhelming. The, the, whole, the whole thought of like having a checklist I need to think about that. And then, like, you're and then done resting for the at the day. end of the day, I don't know what that would be like. And then I start to think about siestas and I think about other cultures that mm. do things differently. Um, and it makes Superior. me really think. I know. We just do this so shittily. Um, yes. And, and to me be too. honest, like it really makes me think so much about mental health and what happens to people when they keep rushing and rushing and rushing and keep striving and striving and striving. I think I'm guilty of that entirely, trying to get out of my poverty, trying to get out of the uneducated experience that I had. Again, nothing wrong with not being educated, but for some reason I got a message that I needed to do it differently. So I worked hard, I still work hard, and I cannot stop that treadmill. But even thinking about it as a choice or you know even the idea of yeah. creating spaciousness that space is the new checklist i mean it's like that's why I, I think i've told you before like i have this mantra that i've been trying so hard to change this addiction yeah. Yeah. to busyness or this feeling of like yes, I got 12 things done in the time that it would normally take a person to get one thing yeah. done. And it's some sort of a badge of honor. But just this idea of I choose ease. I choose quality over quantity. How's that working? Um, <laughs> 50, 50. I know. The, oh, that's that bad. That's better than I thought. 50, 50. It, it depends on if I'm getting enough sleep and it depends on how behind sure. in life I feel. But yeah. what I notice is that if I'm not getting enough sleep, I'm so much more anxious about checking things off of my list yep. than when I am getting enough sleep. It almost seems like, or if like if I'm well, I should say it's not Which just goes sleep. back to symptoms. Right. Like if we're sleeping well. Yes. If we're feeling well, I can absolutely um, see that it's a choice to create space and be where your feet are and that you don't have to subscribe to, well, this is what is done and this is what is expected or celebrated. Well, and maybe we need to go to space in order to create, create spaciousness. Space? Can we... Kate, do we need to do that, or can we can we buy some here and uh, sprinkle it? In our <laughs> I think we days. could create a space room. Let's yes, no, no, no cell gravity. phones allowed in your space room. No, no. Isn't that a great <laughs> idea, though? No, yeah, no, no, computers, I hear you. no technology. Like 
cushy little bottoms that you can float around on. Oh, anti-gravity, anti-gravity, um, sensory deprivation. Tank. Okay. Do you know what I keep thinking about is like this story today is one of the turtle in the hair. Is that tortoise in the hair? You can say turtle. A tortoise is kind of a turtle. Yes. But you know what I mean? It's just no. fastest hamster on oh. the hamster wheel. And then that doesn't get me where I want to go any faster than somebody else who has this mindful quality over qu quality over quantity approach. I want to be something in between the rabbit and the turtle. A mole rat? No. Maybe like a deer? A deer sounds elegant. A deer. Oh. An elegant deer. Kind of a gazelle or deer that's kind of pacing and running through. I, I like love it. that idea. I'm going with that. So we we should focus on gazelle. Um, boy, Kate, I could talk to you for a really long time. Um, and of course, we're going a little off. So, you know, we were going to talk a little bit about like how well-being, which is what we're talking about, like this well-being model of quality over quantity, taking care of yourself, getting done at the end of the day and success. I mean, that's the tricky thing, right? Like matching those two words um, and, and just making sure that our evaluation or identification or definition of success, maybe that's what we really are talking about in terms of like what we mm. need to shift or give some thought to. And that's where everyone has their own individual experience with that. But boy, to consider how privilege or to consider how class or socioeconomic status or where you live or whatnot, how all of those things might impact that is really important. I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit more. Yeah, I'm very interested in the idea of success. Like often when I run workshops, I'll have a prompt where I ask folks like, what does success look like to you? And where did you learn that? Like, where did you, like, I learned what success looked like from like watching Indiana Jones and seeing him being this professor or like watching the Dead Poets Society, you know, like oh. I learned, right? Oh, captain, my captain. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I was like, so that will be me one day, right? Or, but the idea of like success is like, I, you know, six figures or like th this idea and then asking folks like, okay, well now like shift, what does success truly look like to you? Like for me, it's like, mm, I want to have enough time to like make a stew or like, I want to like spend time with my spouse, you know? So like shifting and thinking around like, what is this idea of success that is, you know, we have been like taught to achieve, like seek and, you know, potentially burn ourselves out in effort to achieve and like what is truly what we need and want to to feel good. Um, and I think slow productivity is a nice way to to move us there. I also think um, like just developing an awareness around the way that we are acting and the way we feel about our productivity. So you were really into the idea of personal resources earlier, Talia. So thinking about like, okay, I want to be successful today. Where are my personal resources at? Like realistically, how much time, energy, and focus do I have? What's my mental health like today? What mood am I in? What access to furniture do I have? How will that affect my body? And then choosing an approach to your productivity that is actually achievable and accessible to you based on that. So we're shifting our idea of success of like 
selecting a, a task or selecting um, you know, something from our to-do list that we can actually achieve. And I think this lines up well with what you were both talking about on your New Year's episode, like planning to make go like planning for goals and like making approaches that are that are truly accessible. Um, I could go forever on this, but I'll pause and it's here if you want to have anything to contribute before I, I keep going. Well, I mean, this is like the moment we've all been waiting for because of course we're like a bunch of academics, right? And so the thought that there are practical and tangible tips like this isn't just some heady pie in the sky idea, but there are ways to tap into this, make it a part of our lifestyle. Um, and I don't know about you, but I'm I'm dying to know how, like what, how do we do this? <laughs> Help us. How so do, no pause needed. Please continue, Please, Kate. please, don't stop. <laughs> All right, here I go. Um, so, I mean, I want to, I'll share today with you and with your listeners, like thinking around, like, just like our schedule. Well, I'll, I'll hone in on that, like how we schedule our weeks, for example. And um, one thing I want to acknowledge, and I, I think about this in my research, is like invisible or behind the scenes labor. So when we schedule our week or we write our to-do list, we might say like record, like record podcasts, right? Or we might say like, you know, um, clean the house or something like that. But we're not thinking, or maybe we might not say clean the house. Anyways, the point is like, there are invisible labors that don't make it onto our to-do list, but zap our personal resources. There are behind the scenes labors that we need to do in order to create or um, complete something. And we also don't often include those on our to-do list. Then we may feel like I didn't accomplish anything today, or why am I not further ahead? Because we're not accounting for all of the things we need to do, like caretaking, like, um, you know, particularly if you um, have fatigue. I've, I've been doing some research recently around like chronic fatigue syndrome and long COVID and like post-exertional malaise that can lay people up for, you know, like hours to days to weeks, right? So when you can acknowledge all of the energy, time, focus, expenditure you're doing on those tasks um, that might not make it onto your to-do list, uh, but maybe like, you know, domestic labor or care work that you're doing, which is traditionally not acknowledged, right? that is a way that you may be able to more realistically set up your schedule and your plan um, and not burn yourself out in the purpose. Another thing that this um, makes me think of, and I always love to shout this out because it was really revolutionary for me, is Sarah Knight's must-do method. I'm not sure if either of you know Sarah Knight's work. Um, she's uh, called like an anti-guru. She's writing like the life-changing magic of not giving enough and like things like that. She's very funny. It's a great title. Yeah. Yeah, she's very funny. But the must-do approach is when you start with your to-do list and you schedule it for the day that it actually needs to be done. So like Doug, you were mentioning earlier, like, oh, is everything wrapped? Do I have all the decorations, right? So if you were using the must-do approach, you might look at your week and say, Actually, you know, it's most important to hang these decorations on Monday, but I really don't mean to wrap the gifts until Thursday. I'm not going to start that on Monday. I'm going to intentionally schedule this task for later. And um, sometimes folks might want to do this if they know that a certain day of the week is tiring for them. Don't schedule particular tasks on that day if you can't. 
And the last thing I want to I want to share today um, is the concept of spoon theory. Is this something that either of you are familiar with? I have no clue. No. I use spoons, but I, I do. do not know what this I is. I am a user of spoons. Okay. No, tell well, us. you may tell be a, a dual user of spoons once I tell you about this. Okay. So, <laughs> spoon theory is um, a concept that's utilized within the, you know, the chronic illness and disability community. It was created by a person named Christine Miserandino. And the idea is that... Um, you know, it is a metaphor to communicate and measure our energy levels. So the reason it's called spoon theory is because she, uh, Ms. Rendino was at a restaurant with her friend who was not chronically ill. And she was trying to communicate what it was like to live with energy levels that were unpredictable. So she held up a bunch of spoons. I've got pens here, but she held up like 12 spoons and was like, this is your units of energy for the day. You have to spend these on things like cooking, uh, showering, commuting, going to work. So you use all of your spoons up. You have one left at the end of the day. You have to cook. You have to shower. What are you going to do? You can't do both. And the idea with spoon theory is that it changes every day. I may have 12 spoons or 12 units of energy on a per certain day, but if I'm experiencing a chronic illness flare, I may have three. So how do I choose how to utilize my energy levels then? This can be helpful to communicate to other folks like my spouse who's not chronically ill. We use spoon theory. So I can say to them like, I really only have like one spoon left. Can you do the dishes tonight? Or like, you know, I can't. Um, can you carry the laundry upstairs or, you know, whatever? And they can help me out. So spoon theory can be a great way to um, some chronically ill folks like to use this to check in and say, you know, like, what are my spoon levels like today? How, what tasks do I need to prioritize um, if I only have, you know, enough energy to maybe do two things? It is revolutionary. What an incredible way to think about it. I, I mean, have so much I want to say about it. Say, say some of I'm, all the things. Can't I say That's everything enough. that I want to say? That's enough out of you. Really? <laughs> <laughs> that that really works with me if you try to make me not say something. Um, <laughs> say more. Uh, first of all, Kate, I love the concept. This is I went I went multiple directions with this. The thing that I loved that you said is that it does change from day to day. It can change from circumstance to circumstance. I think about all of the stressors that people experience. In their lives, losing a job, losing a loved one, um, whatever it is, those are going to change how many spoons you have right at the beginning of the day or during the day. And that can change during the day. So I appreciate that it's kind of an ongoing assessment of how many spoons. Um, and I also, I get very curious mm. about our 20th episode we're going to need to do on <laughs> whether one person chronically or, or I, I, I want to say regularly has 10 spoons and the other partner generally has three spoons like on a regular basis and how couples work together to understand and support each other when there's maybe a difference of resources on an ongoing basis that's what came to mind for me because i will tell you i think a lot of my couples will say one carries more of the burden in the household and the family and you know the day-to-day -day stuff than the other and there's all kinds of quabbles about contribution right to the relationship and when you take a look at it this way, mm. somebody has to decide in some ways, am I okay that my partner generally does not have 10 spoons right. on a regular basis like I do? So resentment right? isn't built over time. What do you think about that? I'm curious what comes to mind for you. Well, I think that um, 
I'm glad that there are folks like you in the world who can support people as clinicians who are going through this challenge. Um, and I think that it is, um, it is an ongoing negotiation and it is an ongoing thing to you know, share and communicate um, and to not feel resentful. And there is often, you know, or there may be grief that comes up around it. I do think that using metaphors, whether it's spoon theory or the concept of a battery or the concept of like a light bulb, you know, something that, you know, some folks who are chronically ill say like, my battery never fully charges. I'm always only ever going to be at 60%, you know? so. Metaphors can be a helpful way to communicate and share um, an experience. And, but I think it is like a continual negotiation. My spouse and I, like we have certain uh, chores that I do and certain chores that they do. There are certain things that, you know, like they will do on their own or I will do on my own, you know? So there are, um, but it is a, it is a, you know, ongoing negotiation. And I think also there are, um, there are some wonderful resources out there. I think that like the chronic illness, the disability uh, justice community, um, there are going to be conversation spaces where folks who are chronically ill partner will communicate about this and folks, you know, who maybe are, uh, you know, in a relationship with someone and how to, um, you know, make sure that everyone feels like they have agency and support in that situation. Kate, you know, one of the things you just said um, about negotiation, like one of the things that I think is critically important in any relationship over the course of time in order to endure um, a connection that works, you have to be able to communicate. You have to really understand kind of who you are and what those changes are in your lifetime and your evolution and your development. But you have to be able to communicate that. That's and right. we take for granted how easy that word sounds. It's not easy. You know, there, and you and I have done several episodes now and now uh, on communication and yeah. how you effectively communicate what's going on for you. That's right. But it is this ongoing negotiation and it is this ongoing, not only self-awareness on our part, like understand what's going on for you, but expressing that to your partner, taking time for that. I'm big on like regular meetings for couples, families, mm -hmm. et cetera, you know, at least weekly to be able to check in. I've got couples that do it every morning. Uh, but it's really important to check in. Resentment can build so quickly yes. without that ongoing communication. And again, going back to like mental health and stigma, I think people get really stuck on all kinds of internalized shame and blame and insecurities about, you know, what we have going on. Going back to your whole grief process about like when you discovered that, you know, my back is not going to allow me to do this the same way. Uh, to do this life the same way the reality is there's grief to do but it took you courageousness to kind of just say this is what's going on for me That's right. and be honest about it so again critically important part moving forward kate this has just been a spectacular episode i could talk to you for hours and hours and hours I, i'm really grateful for your time yeah i mean same i literally yeah. every every point that we've been talking about i'm like but i i've got more questions about this and more questions about that i, I mean one thing that i i would i think is really important maybe that you could share with us it, are these resources that you're talking about for people with chronic illness and health conditions or for their partners um these chat rooms the spaces that you're talking about where can people find the support and the resources and i mean i think that's incredible and we can yeah. put it up in the show notes too yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are some folks who are doing some phenomenal research and writing on this. Um, Dr. Devin Price, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist, he also has 
um, a recent book out called Unmasking Autism, just like um, he's a phenomenal researcher. Um, also, Casey Davis's work, she uh, wrote How to Keep House While Drowning, and that is a wonderful resource thinking about. I'm listening to that. Oh, it's just that book blew my mind. I was like, wait, I don't need to fold my laundry right after I do it. This is going <laughs> right. to save me so much energy. <laughs> right? Um, that book is a, wond a wonderful resource. Um, another thing that I really like is there is a magazine called Sick Magazine that is edited by Olivia Spring. And I actually have a copy right here. I'll hold it up. Um, and this is a collection of resources by... Um, uh disabled and sick folks and so like this i love reading this because it's just you know like poetry and writing and artwork by other folks who are chronically ill and disabled so there are places in books but also like there's some phenomenal substack newsletters out there right now by some of the biggest writers in disability justice work um and you can find that just by going in and like, you know, searching for keywords, you'll see folks pop up. Um, and those those are places where you can, you know, be in conversations in the comments. Um, and um, yeah, like there's some great Instagram accounts. I think there's, I, I don't want to mess up the name, so I won't say it, but there are like, you know, Instagram accounts created by disabled folks who are sharing like, different accessibility tools to make cooking easier, you know, or like different, like quick meals that you can make when you have a low spoon day. So there are lots of resources that I think you can find maybe through Googling um, or by starting with some of the authors I mentioned today. I'll it's tell incredible. you, yeah, I'll tell you, um, I argue with my clients when they come in, they say, I'm being really lazy. I'm like, that's not what's going on. So this laziness doesn't exist. Um, I do not know this book. I am going to get it. That speaks my language. I just yes. don't think I th there's always something going on that's deeper that's related to what that experience is. So and what I, I really think love you've it. made so clear today also is that a lot of these are invisible obstacles to others and invisible disability that you have to communicate how many spoons you yeah. have because... Yeah. Hey, you look bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, fabulous. Look at those gorgeous glasses. No one would ever know how many spoons a person has. Plus, yeah. I think we do a lot of masking. Mm -hmm. And so we're presenting our best selves interpersonally. And we might be spending five of our six spoons just to present well. And so, I mean, yes, I reiterate, we can't thank you enough this is like the perfect new year's it episode yeah. for everybody who just has that 20 new year's resolutions and is already feeling overwhelmed and lazy and unsuccessful this is what they need to listen to agreed Kate, I can't thank you enough. Um, very timely to have this conversation. I anticipate we'll be seeing you again sometime. Um, I wanted to go off on several tangents as we both talked about. So um, we look forward to it, but please take care of yourself as you continue your journey. And thank you so much. And before you go, how can our people find you? Right. Plug anything sure. that, you're, that you're wanting to share with us. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. This has been a total pleasure. I would love to come back. Um, I could truly talk about this stuff for days. And so folks can find me. I'm katehenry.com. And um, also I have a weekly newsletter that I send that has a lot of wonderful discussions around the topics we're talking about here. And um, that's katehenry.substack.com. Um, that my uh, 
Substack is called Tending. I really have a theme here with Tending. And um, so it's it's Tending with Dr. Kate Henry. Um, I also have a, a monthly Q&A there that folks can submit questions and I'll answer them. Oh, it's fantastic. All of this is going to be in the show notes. But seriously, Dr. Kate, you are such a gift to the world. And yeah. I love that you made so much meaning out of your experience of chronic health issues and you are paving the way for so many of us to rebel against this productivity culture starting tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Take care of yourself, Kate. And for those who subscribe, we have a special little addition adding on to this if you stay tuned. Did you love it as much as we did? She's spectacular. She's phenomenal. I found that really enjoyable. Like, I really could have talked to her for a really long time. I know. There were so many questions I did not ask, and I don't know if you fully appreciate the restraint that I exhibited. I did not notice your restraint, but I do appreciate it. You guys, if you loved this episode... Do you know what would be really fun is if you liked and subscribed yeah, and that not would be amazing. only are we on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you enjoy your podcast, but we're also on the tube of Which the is you. YouTube. <laughs> not Pornhub, but YouTube. That's right. Same diff. No. And send them to friends and send them, like, share them. Friends, enemies. I think we told you notoriety is is just as good for us as fame. And if you have any questions for us, any mental health questions, any relationship questions, any life hardship questions, any circumstances that are just driving you freaking nuts, please go to wearenotfine.com. We have a space for you to anonymously or (laughs) non-anonymously give us your information and your question, and we would be delighted to talk about it on the podcast. And we will dedicate a podcast to your topic. We would love that. So please feel free at any point. And again, anonymous if that makes you feel like it's an easier way to go about that. Or, menomena, do, 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 menomena. Are you at all distracted? <laughs> and we're on social media as well, as you probably know. And if you don't, you yeah. should, because our amazing editor, Alex Ray, makes these unbelievable one-minute clips that are so funny. He catches God, we love the you, funniest. Alex. We, God, so we lucky. love Alex. So lucky for our team. Jesus, you should see, you should see the edits. They're hilarious. Okay, cat meme. You should see Doug's eyeballs right now. I bet that's going to be in one of the cuts for today. (laughs) So Douglas L. Jensen with an E-N, D.R. Talia Jackson, We're Not Fine, might be We're Not Fine pod. Look around. We're We're the only We're Not Finers out there in the world. And... We're not fine, Doug. But at least we didn't get sent 20,000 pounds of fish food <laughs> by an Avenger. It was it was revenge dog food. We love you guys. See you next week. And if you need pet food, go to Tali's house. Chewy is devil- delivering it soon. <laughs> delivering. <laughs> delivering Menomina. it soon. Love you. Take care, guys. <laughs> <laughs>